Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our gods, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And now I'll pray for Scott um, as he comes to preach from God's words. Father God, we thank you for the Bible. Thank you that we are able to know you better and to love you more by hearing your word preached to us. Please be with Scott as he speaks from it. Please help him to preach from your word clearly and faithfully. And as we listen, please remove anything that might distract our focus. Please humble our hearts to be taught and changed by your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. And what we've seen as we've looked at Revelation is God's perspective on what is happening around us today and God's perspective on what will happen in the future. So Revelation describes it at the start of the book as things that must soon take place. And as we've read through the first 11 chapters of the book, we've seen two things really, really clearly. We've seen God's suffering people, and we've seen God's sovereign power. It's easy for us to look at the history of God's people, to look at the church, to look at it throughout the ages, and to feel like at certain times God's taken his hands 
off the steering wheel, so to speak, or he's had to jostle and contend for power with other forces, other gods. But Revelation really rather resoundingly shows us that this is simply not the case. This is simply not true. There are tribulations, there are trials that await God's people, but God retains complete and utter control over all of these events. He alone has divine authority to guide history to the conclusion that he has decided it will reach. And so Revelation calls the Christian, it calls all of us, in light of this, to be faithful to Jesus, to be faithful to our witness to him, to be faithful to the gospel that he gave us and told us to share with others, even when we suffer as Christians. It motivates the suffering church to keep going when the difficulties that we face might cause us to question whether or not it's really worth it in the end. And so far in Revelation, we've seen two accounts of history from slightly different perspectives. We've seen one account of seven seals and another account of seven trumpets. And each of these accounts audibly and visually shows John who received these visions and shows us, the reader, that the hardships facing God's people are real and they are tough. But each account also shows John and shows us God's power to protect and to preserve his people throughout. God has been on a mission throughout the chapters in the books of the Bible to make a people for himself, to keep a people for himself and to win victory for them over their enemies. He's very good at doing it. He won't be stopped. He won't be defeated now. And so we turn to chapter 12 and we witness the the cosmic battle unfolding throughout history between God, his angels, his followers, and Satan, his angels, his followers. Chapter 12 takes us deeper, if you like, as we peel back the layers of the trials and tribulations that we've seen so far throughout Revelation to see what's really going on behind the scenes, to see what really causes, what really drives these tribulations that we face And what becomes apparent to us throughout chapter 12 is that Satan, the devil, is real. He is determined, but he is ultimately defeated and disarmed. He is powerless to harm God's people, powerless to undo the work that God has done or is doing or will do. There are three movements in chapter 12 for us to consider. Um, Let's look at each of them in turn. You see them on the order of service that you should have found on your seat as you came in. And for those of you who are watching via YouTube, I think that's the camera there. I think I'm looking at you. You'll see it uh, underneath the link that Esther alluded to uh, earlier on. So firstly, the dragon defeated as he hunts God's rescuer. The first six verses. John sees a great sign appear In heaven, he sees verses one and two a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This woman was pregnant, crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. 
And then we read in verse 5 that this woman is to give birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, verse 5 is actually a quotation from Psalm 2 back in the Old Testament, a coronation psalm, a psalm about the arrival of God's king, the king that he was to give to his people to rule the nations. And so these verses are clearly a depiction of the birth of Jesus, our Savior King. And so therefore, naturally, we would assume that the woman mentioned here in chapter 12 is Mary. This must be an account of the physical birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Mary seems to match the description of the woman here. But if you look again at verse 1, we read that the woman has on her head a crown of 12 stars. And verse 6 tells us that the woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. And then again later on in verse 14, which we'll come to, we'll see that the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. These are allusions to the Old Testament descriptions that we read of, of God's people. The 12 stars are likely to be symbolic of the 12 tribes, fed, nourished by God in the wilderness, lifted up on eagles' wings, as we read in the Old Testament. It's extremely likely that this description of the woman here in Revelation chapter 12 is not Mary, but God's people waiting, waiting for the birth of their rescuer, waiting for the birth of their Messiah King. God had made promises to his people that a rescuer would be born from God's people. You can read about those promises in Genesis as you look at God's conversations with Abraham. God promised that the ruler of the nations would be born through his line, through Abraham's lineage. And this woman here in Revelation chapter 12, this woman represents God's people. Finally, at long last, at the point where it looks like the savior king that they have so desperately waited for is about to be born. But this woman is not alone in the maternity ward. There is a very, very unwelcome guest in there with her. Verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. He stands before the woman who is about to give birth, jaws wide open, ready to devour this child, to devour this saviour, this saviour king, as soon as he is born, ready to steal all hope and put an end to God's promises of a good king who would rule the nations with justice, power. It really is a horrendous image. And we'll see the dragon identified later on as Satan in verse 9, the deceiver, the accuser of God's people. This dragon has seven diadems on his seven heads, a number in Revelation that stands for completeness, sovereignty. Satan dares to clothe himself in the same number. He dares to claim the same attributes as the almighty 
God. Satan dares to stand in direct opposition to him, to mount a challenge to his reign and rule. Satan stands ready to devour the one who is to rule the nations, because that is a role that Satan wants. Every single breath that Satan breathes is motivated by undoing everything that God is and everything that God has done. Revelation chapter 12 shows us that he is real and that we must understand his motives and his movements. Satan's fingerprints are all over every single attempt to silence the gospel, to lead men and women away from Christ and away from the forgiveness and the salvation that God offers through him. But wonderfully, in verse 5, the dragon is completely outmaneuvered, outpowered, as God literally snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. The child was caught up to God and to his throne. Satan does not claim him. And this is something that will flavor the rest of the, the chapter. The devil is defeated by the Lord again and again and again. It's something that flavored Jesus' life on earth as we see the male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. As we watch him and observe his life on the earth 2,000 years ago, you might remember when Jesus is born, Herod sets out to kill Jesus by ordering the death of every single male child under the age of two. But he is defeated again outsmarted, overpowered by the Lord as God guides Mary and her newborn baby out of Herod's reach. Later on in, in Jesus' earthly life, when Satan is with Jesus in the desert, Satan tries to get Jesus to side with him rather than to go ahead with the Lord's plans and promises. Worship me, Satan says. But he is defeated overpowered by the Lord when Jesus says, away from me, Satan. And then ultimately when Jesus lies in the grave, executed at the hands of the Roman and Jewish authorities, it looks like the rescuer, the Messiah King of God's people, has finally been silenced, finally stopped. It looks like Satan has won. But again, Satan is defeated overpowered by the Lord as he pays for the sins of God's people and rises again from the dead and ascends to the throne, reconciling God's people to God forever. Let's understand very, very clearly that God's rescue plan for his people is guarded by his sovereignty. God has begun the rescue mission to deliver his people from Satan's lies, from Satan's deceptions, from Satan's accusations, and God shows ample evidence time and time again that he can and he will bring that mission to a complete success. And that should give the struggling Christian, whether it's 2,000 years ago or sitting in a, in a local church in Edinburgh this evening, or watching from home, that should give the struggling Christian confidence to stand for Christ in the face of trials and tribulations. Let's understand that there is no moment on earth 
when Satan sneaks a surprise victory or catches God off guard. There is no victory for Satan on the earth over God's plans, over God's promises for his people. It might be how it looks at times, but actually Revelation, God's perspective on history, stops me from thinking that that's true. Revelation tells me instead that Satan is left defeated, frustrated, as he hunts for God's rescuer and tries to put an end to God's promises. That's the first thing for us to understand. The second thing for us to see this evening is the dragon defeated as he attacks God's armies. The dragon defeated as he attacks God's armies. Over the past few months, uh, there's been a very welcome return of live sports, football, rugby, NFL, amongst other things, uh, to my television. And one of the things that I have found myself smiling at, I didn't quite realize how much I missed this until I saw it again. One of the things I really appreciated uh, as it has returned uh, to my screen is a good old-fashioned cinematic action replay of the same instant from multiple angles, at times replayed 10, 11, 12 times from entirely different angles. And I've loved watching the same goal, the same try, the same touchdown analyzed from multiple camera angles, multiple perspectives. And it gives the viewer, it gives me a fuller understanding, a fuller picture of what's just happened. And this next section, if you like, these next verses, 7 to 12, are, if you like, an action replay of the first six verses, but this time from a heavenly perspective. So if you like, we've seen it from the earthly angle, and now we see heaven's view of the same victory that God won over Satan. And, just like a good action replay should, it gives us a fuller, richer understanding of what's going on. War arises in verse 7 as Michael and his angels fight against the dragon. God takes the fight to Satan. And the dragon and his angels fight back, but in verse 8, he is defeated. And there is no longer any place for them in heaven. He is thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. God is victorious over Satan on the earth. God is victorious over Satan from an earthly perspective on the cross. God is victorious over Satan in the heavenly realms from a heavenly perspective on the cross. There is no arena on earth nor in heaven where Satan wins. I think we're starting to understand this, but let's not see this as some sort of fair fight between Satan and the Lord. Let's not misunderstand Satan as some sort of rival God that can mount a serious threat to God's power or to God's plans. Satan is defeated again. His angels are defeated by the heavenly armies. He is eternally ejected from heaven. It's not a fair fight. It's not a close contest. It's a resounding victory for God, his promises, his people. 
Hence the announcement in verse 10 that echoes out from the very heaven which has just conquered and ejected Satan. Verse 10, now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Right at the epicenter of God's victory over Satan stands the cross of Christ. Right at the epicenter of God's victory over Satan stands Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection to eternal life. Jesus' followers, verse 11, have conquered Satan, not by their own works, not because of anything they have done, but by the blood he spilt on the cross in our place for our sins. See, Revelation 12 reveals to us that Satan's armory really is, is twofold. He is the most predictable enemy. He is described in, in verse 9 as the deceiver, the, the one who misleads people into thinking that God is wrong or evil or false. And the other weapon that Satan has in verse 10 is, is the accusations that he throws against God's people, against me, accusations of my sin, accusations of my sinfulness, accusations of the consequences that I deserve because of the sins that I have committed against him. You cannot let Scott into your presence forever. Not when you think about what he's done. You cannot allow Scott to spend eternity with you. Not when he has rebelled and sinned against you so spectacularly, so consistently, so intentionally. Scott belongs to me forever, not you, God. Every single accusation that Satan throws against me Every single accusation that he throws against you, if you sit here tonight as a follower of Jesus, every single accusation is utterly silenced at the cross of Christ. God will not listen to them anymore because he doesn't need to. And so he ejects Satan out of heaven. The weight of sin and sinfulness is enough to crush any beleaguered follower of Jesus. Just ask one. The trials of persecution are enough to unsettle us and then add on top of that the guilt that you know, I feel every single day as, as a sinner when I turn away from God, when I sin against him. In Revelation 12, the silencing, the ejection of the accuser from heaven shows me that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever, ever pluck us from his hands. Why? Because our debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that our Jesus spilled. The curse of sin, Satan's accusations, the claims that he makes, have no hold on us. We have been truly set free by the Son of God. Our slates are wiped eternally clean. 
Thanks to God, thanks to the cross of Christ, Satan no longer has the power to deceive me, nor the power to accuse me. So Christian, stop listening to him. His threats are empty. When the American president, Harry Truman, announced at the end of the Second World War that the Allied forces had won victory, he announced that the flags of freedom fly all over Europe. Well, Revelation announces victory for God and his people over Satan. And the flags of freedom now fly all over the hearts of every single believer, every single church, every single individual that has asked Jesus to forgive us of our sins. The devil is hurled out of heaven, utterly defeated. God will hear his accusations against his people no more. That is the war that God wages for his glory and for his people. And the heavens rejoice. Now that is an eternal reality, one that I can enjoy now, that will push me through the trials and tribulations of this world. But we're just not quite there yet, are we? We're just not quite in the new creation, enjoying the fullness of this just yet. Let's turn to the last five verses in our third heading this evening, verses uh, 13 to 17. The dragon determined as he pursues God's people. See, the heavens actually warn the earth in verse 12, the second half of verse 12. They say, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. God warns his people that Satan is a sore and angry loser. The dragon has been overpowered, overthrown by God, overthrown by his armies, and so Satan turns to the only thing he has left, the only thing he can do. He turns, verse 13, back to the, the woman who had given birth to the male child to pursue her. But as we saw earlier on, the Lord gives the woman two wings of the great eagle, lifting his people up on the eagle's wings, as the Old Testament describes, into the wilderness where she is to be nourished, literally fed for a time and times and half a time. Her time of being pursued by the devil, the time that the church will be pursued by the devil is not short but it is a time that is marked by God, known by him. It will not be forever, and he will nourish and feed us throughout. And even when the serpent tries to use God's own cursed creation against his people, once again, he is utterly defeated, outsmarted, overpowered in his pursuit of God's people. Uh, verse 16, as the Earth opens its mouth and swallows the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth to uh, attempt to, to wipe out God's people, the women. See, God's victory over Satan at the cross, it's a once-for-all victory, but it's not a one-off victory. We need to understand, and I think we get this, we need to understand that Satan is constantly at work to try and undermine God's work 
to throw accusations at us still, even though they're empty. He's still at work. And I think we get that. I think that'll be obvious to a lot of us sitting in the room this evening and listening online. I think the reality, though, that we need pressed upon our hearts is that God is constantly at work to undermine and overpower Satan. We get that Satan is at work to undermine God. We need to understand that God is constantly, constantly working to overpower Satan. Even as recently as we uh, looked at Revelation chapter 11 last week, there will be times when God's people will look defeated, silenced at last. The devil will continue to make war on the offspring of the woman, on all of those throughout the ages and generations who trust in Jesus, those who keep the commandments of God, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, including us sitting here this evening. But our good almighty God simply will not let Satan win. Our good and almighty God will bring life to his suffering church. He will sustain and protect his people again and again, defeating Satan again and again, just as he has promised to, until we are all in the heavenly realms, rejoicing with the angels in verse 12. That is our reality. And there's much, much more that could be said in these verses. We'll understand more and more over the weeks to come what Satan's attacks on God's people will look like specifically. But let's draw to a conclusion on chapter 12. We are to understand that there is an enemy. He is determined, but defeated. Present, but powerless. We are to understand that God is scarier, mightier than anything that Satan has thrown at God's people or could ever throw at God's people. And it's really important that we understand that now, here in chapter 12, before we go on to look at 13 onwards. We are to understand that God is more powerful than anything we're about to see and experience in our lives as a local church in Edinburgh or as individual Christians. We are to understand that the church will be involved in a series of what look like, from our perspective, near misses. Moments when it looks like gospel witness hangs by a thread. There's certainly a few of those in chapter 11. There's certainly, here, there's certainly a few here in chapter 12. There's certainly more to come in Revelation. But God has demonstrated a trustworthy ability to guide, to grow, to protect his church throughout everything that we have seen so far. We have absolutely no need to doubt his sovereignty we have every reason to trust in his care. And so in these moments of tribulation, doubt, uncertainty, despair that we all face, corporately and individually, let's trust the reality of revelation. Let's trust God's care over his church. Let's trust his understanding from his perspective more than we trust things from ours. Let's be quick to trust what Revelation says is true, tells us is true. God is victorious. Satan is defeated. And slow to trust what I often see with my own eyes 
and hear with my own ears. And we are to understand that wonderfully the privilege for every single Christian is that we retell the victory of the cross. We retell the victory of God over Satan every single time in the face of trials and tribulations. We stand for the gospel. We stand for Christ. What a wonderful joy that is. God has won us eternal victory over Satan. It's going to be tough, but we will be with him forever. And it is so worth it. When I was, was much younger, I have uh, very fond memories of playing football after primary school for hours and hours and hours. That was when I could run for more than 20 minutes. And I remember starting with a kind of relatively small group of maybe kind of, you know, four or five of us. And then gradually over time, word would spread that there was a group of folk from school playing football down at the local park, and so more people would come along and, and pile in. And as they, as they arrived, as you know, kind of eight, nine-year-old arrives on the um, football pitch at Park to, to play with his friends, he's got one question in his mind. Which team's winning? Who's winning? Why? Because that's the team he wants to join. That's the team he wants to play for. We want to be on that team. Well, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is the situation. You are currently on the same team as the defeated, disarmed dragon, Satan. It is a disastrous place to be, and you would be silly, beyond silly, to stay there. This is the invitation. Revelation 12 is your chance to turn to Jesus to believe in him, to ask him for forgiveness, and to join the team that has won resoundingly. And if you are a Christian here this evening or listening online, you have joined the winning team. This victory that God has won for us is ours. Jesus, his gospel, everything that he gives us is our fuel to endure to the end. It doesn't always look like the church is winning. It doesn't always look like God's victory holds. But that's what Revelation 12 is here for. It's to tune our perspective to God's. It's to map his perspective onto ours. You have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. You have conquered by the word of your testimony as you believe the gospel and continue in it. Keep going. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, thank you that in your might and in your majesty you fight against evil for us on our behalf. Thank you that you have defeated Satan resoundingly, especially when we are so helpless to do it ourselves. Thank you that you have won victory for us and you share that victory with us. Help us, Father, to, to know that this is true, but not just to assent to it being true, but actually to, to live it out as we uh, live our lives as Christians, as we make decisions. Help us to do so in a way that reflects the reality 
of the eternal victory that you have won for us. Help us to ignore Satan's lies and accusations. Help us instead to listen to you, to listen to the voice who says, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. In his name we pray. Amen.